Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Norton, one of the pastors here. And uh, on October 4th, 2009, New Denver Church hosted its first public worship service. Um, we had actually had numerous gatherings before that. We had some vision meetings where we talked about our vision. Our first one was actually a Duffy roll. Isn't that cool? And uh, we, um, we had some informal worship gatherings. We had leadership meetings. Uh, but October 4th, 2009, that was the day we first went live, if you will. We had first had our public worship service. Um, and we have a picture. This picture is from that day. And uh, this is Drew Hill. He was one of our first LDP residents. Um, he's sporting a cool uh, blue NDC t-shirt. And he's putting our sign up on uh, the building where we met. At that time, we met in a different building for about four months until we moved here. Um, and he was very enthusiastic about welcoming people to church uh, that day. So here we are, 10 years later, um, celebrating all that God has done. And on Sunday, uh, October 4th, uh, October 6th, in a few weeks, um, we're going to have a huge party. And uh, everybody's invited. We're going to have a special worship service that day. And, um, and for this month leading up to that, during September, um, we're just taking some time to explore some of the things that have made uh, New Denver Church what it is. And so Stephen kicked us off last week and talked a little bit about um, some of the vision there at the very beginning when we started. And today, um, I want to ask a simple question, um, and I want to talk about our beliefs and the question we asked was, what do we believe? What do we believe? Because if you go to any church's website, right, there's usually a section about their beliefs. There's a section that's sometimes called the statement of faith. Maybe it's called their doctrinal statement. Um, sometimes these are denominational statements, if the church is a denominational church. Uh, sometimes they're statements of faith that the church came up with on their own, especially if they're a non-denominational church. Um, some churches have... Uh, statements and positions on all sorts of issues that they believe are really, really important. And so with all that in mind, when you're starting a church from scratch, we had to ask this question, what do we believe? But there's a couple of challenges to this question. Uh, the first challenge is simple. The Bible never addresses this in any systematic or organized way. There's no place you can actually turn to in the Bible that says, hey, this is what the statement of faith should be for churches. If you're going to start a church, this is the list that you should go with. These are the things that you should put on there. Paul, in all of his letters to churches, he never says that. He writes to churches all the time, but he never says, hey, if you have a statement of faith, put this in your statement of faith. Jesus never preaches a sermon on it. So the Bible doesn't actually help much with this question. It talks about belief a whole lot, but it never gives us any kind of list. And that's hard because oftentimes we think these kinds of lists are really important, and that doesn't mean that these kinds of lists or having a statement of faith is wrong. It just means we can't really turn to the Bible for a lot of help on this question. So that's the first challenge when we ask this question, what do we believe? But here's another challenge. Who's the we? Who's the we in this? If the question is, what do we as New Denver Church believe, is we the pastors? What do the pastors believe? Is we the, the key leaders? What do the key leaders believe? Is we the members, the people who have you know, become formal members of the church? Is it what do they believe? Is we the attenders, just anyone who attends or joins us on a Sunday? And you see, this becomes problematic as well, because if we is the pastors on one hand, what do the pastors believe? Well, that's not really representative of the church. That's just what a handful of people 
believe. But if on the other hand, we as, what does everybody and anyone who ever attends New Denver Church believe? Well, how do we figure that out, right? I mean, do we just go around and we all talk about all the different things we believe and see if there's anything we can ever find in common? And then we make that a list and then someone stands at the door and whenever someone shows up on Sunday, they have this list and it's like, hey, just so you know, these are all the things you have to believe if you attend here. And so you just read through the list first, make sure that you agree with all these things. I mean, would anyone want to go to a church like that? Would we ever be a church for anybody on a spiritual journey, wherever they are in their faith, if that's how we approached this? So these two challenges weighed on us early on. The Bible doesn't really provide a list, and who's the we, and how do we define that? And so we decided to change the question. We came up with a different question. Now, we didn't actually write this down. We didn't have meetings about this where we went on a whiteboard and we wrote down. It wasn't that intentional. And yet, I think, as a few of us met early on, we slowly shifted our perspective. Instead of asking the question, what do we believe, we asked this question. What beliefs will define our community? What beliefs will define our community? It's a really subtle difference, but do you see that there's a little bit of a difference there? Do you see how the second question is more about the community in general and not about what specific individuals believe? Do you see how the second question is just a bit more descriptive, uh, maybe even more aspirational? It's less prescriptive. It's less about a, a litmus test of these are the things you have to believe. It's a question that makes space for people. It's a question where someone might say, you know what, I'm not sure I share all those beliefs, but I can respect that a community has decided to be defined by these beliefs. So what beliefs will define our community? That's really what the question became. And in 2009, we were able to come up with an answer pretty quickly. And so today, I want to share with you the answer that we came up with, what our statement of faith became, and how we answered that specific question, what beliefs will define our community, how we answered that in 2009, and then how our convictions about that have actually grown stronger over the years. So, how did we decide what beliefs will define our community? Well, first of all, we decided they would be the Apostles' Creed. It would be the Apostles' Creed. So let's put that on the screen. This is the Apostles' Creed, and I'm not going to read through all of it. If you're not familiar with it or if you don't remember, you can sort of skim through it as I talk. But let me give you a little bit of background on the Apostles' Creed. It's the oldest known statement of faith in Christianity. In fact, legend has it that the apostles were the ones that developed it themselves in Jerusalem, um, but there's not a lot of evidence to support that, and so that might be a bit of a stretch. But here's what we do know, that by about 140 AD, so a generation or two removed from the apostles, the language of what would eventually be called the Apostles' Creed began to be used and take shape. And it all started with baptism. So as this early Christian movement was growing, there were people deciding to become followers of Jesus, which was not easy in the Roman Empire where that was a very small group of people. Um, And as people chose to become followers of Jesus during that time, they went through this process of baptism. And the way the process looked back then is they would ask people to take some time before they got baptized to really reflect on what they're doing, to realize this is a really big decision they're making, and to understand what they were giving their lives to. 
And so at the end of this process, on the day that someone got baptized, a pastor would say, why are you here getting baptized? What is it that you believe? And the earliest records tell us that people would stand up and they would say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son and our Lord. And they would go on and they would share their deepest held convictions, their core beliefs. And it didn't take long. It took maybe 30 seconds to sort of go through the things that they felt were the most important. And this confession that people would make when they got baptized became standardized over the years and later became known as the Apostles' Creed. It was originally said in Greek. That was the language that was spoken during that time. Later, Roman uh, or, or Latin would take over the Roman Empire. And the first word in Latin is the word credo, which means I believe. And that's where we get this English word creed from, a statement of your faith, a statement of your deepest held beliefs. Now, there were other creeds. There were other confessions. There were other statements that came out of uh, church history. In the fourth century, there was this big debate that arose about who Jesus was and whether Jesus was actually really God. And so there's this big council of church leaders that got together in the city called Nicaea, and they debated and talked about this for many days. And at the end of that, they produced another creed. And much of the language in this new creed, it would be called the Nicene Creed, was just repeated from the Apostles' Creed. Then they added a whole bunch of specific things about this debate regarding who Jesus was. In the 5th century, there were more debates about the Trinity and how to understand that and what that meant. And a guy named Athanasius came up with a new creed that, that really explored the idea of, of the Trinity and what that meant. And his creed became known as the Athanasian Creed. In the 16th century, during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, he was one of the leaders of the Reformation, he wrote a creed and it became known as the Augsburg Confession. And it contained 28 articles of faith, 28 different statements about a whole bunch of other topics that he felt like were important. The nature of sacraments and good works and mass and confession and the authority of the Pope and praying to the saints. Because those were all specific issues that were being debated at that time. And, and he felt like we need to make statements upon these things in our statement of faith. Well, the Church of England developed out of the Reformation as well, and they basically looked at Luther and said, you've got your 29 articles of faith, we'll see you and raise you to 39 articles of religion. <laughs> Seriously, if you're Anglican, the 39 articles of religion is the statement of faith for Anglicans, because they believe that there were a few more things that we needed to clarify and address. About 100 years later, the Puritans took over in England. And they gathered an assembly to come up with their own statement of faith, and they met for 10 years discussing this at Westminster Abbey. And out of that came the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you include all the scripture references that they included in their Confession of Faith, it runs to 150 pages, single-spaced. Aren't you glad we don't say that once a month in church, right? <clears throat> now, those aren't the only ones. There's been countless other creeds and confessions and statements of faith that address any and every issue that any particular group or any particular church or any particular denomination feels like it's important. 
And yet there's one creed that's really stood the test of time. There's one creed that can be said by every Roman Catholic, every evangelical, every Eastern Orthodox, every mainline Protestant, every Pentecostal, every Christian of every stripe and every time. One creed that seems to cut through all of the other issues, all of the debates. One creed that's really short and sweet, that seems to get at what the most core beliefs of a follower of Jesus are, and that's the Apostles' Creed. Now, it's not perfect, right? I mean, if anyone had asked my opinion when it was being written, or if I was hired as a copy editor on this, right, there might be a few things I would tweak. There might be some things I would say a little bit differently. And as I said, it doesn't come straight from the Bible. It's not like Paul wrote this down and said, you know, this is, this is going to be our creed moving forward. But when we asked the question 10 years ago, what are the beliefs that are going to define us as a community? We thought, well, what are the beliefs that have defined the Christian community for 2,000 years? We should probably just go with those. And so we picked the Apostles' Creed, and we made that our statement of faith. And not just because it was the easy thing to do, although it was a lot easier than writing one ourselves, but also because at that time, I think there were a few key reasons or a few key principles that informed this, that that we believed were important when it came to thinking about what it is that we would believe or that we would be defined by as a community of faith. And as, as we've gone on in our history, I think those few principles have become even more important today and will be even more important as we move forward. So I want to take a little bit of time uh, for the rest of our time this morning and share with you three principles um, that are important for us. Here's the first principle. Number one, uh, let's focus on the historic tenets of the Christian faith. In other words, generally speaking, we should hold the same tenets of faith that Christians have held for centuries and centuries. If you put together all the historic creeds, if you could put together all of those confessions, if you could put together all the beliefs that Christians of all different stripes have held, and if you could just map it all out and then find in a big Venn diagram, right, and then find the one place where they all overlap, the one place that's, that's central or, or a part of all of them, where is that overlap? What are those few beliefs that you have find that sort of cross all the years of history? Because history's important. Now, history doesn't trump everything. For 1,500 years, Christians believed the world was flat, right? And we don't believe that anymore. But history's still important when it comes to our core beliefs, what's central to our faith. History can often give us a bigger perspective. It can help us see that this one issue that we think is so important right now, that there's all kinds of debates about right now, and that that we tend to focus on right now, if we could get a broader perspective, we would see that over the course of history, that thing hasn't actually maybe been that important. And we can have a bigger and broader perspective. And the Apostles' Creed helps us do that. It helps us focus on the historic tenets of the Christian faith. But here's a second principle, and this is a really big one. You might have heard this phrase, us use it before, and that's let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. 
You see, if we focus on just a few things that we think are the most central and important things to our belief, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, then that means there's a whole bunch of other things that are not major, that are not central, that are not primary. And so how do we keep the central thing central? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? And that doesn't mean all the other stuff is not important. That doesn't mean there's not a time and a place to talk about all of those other issues, to wrestle with what does the Bible say about prayer? What does the Bible say about money? What does it say about the end times? What does it say about human history? What does it say about human sexuality? What does it say about social justice? What does it say about how the world was created? What does it say about how God is sovereign? What does it say about our responsibility? What does it say about all those things? Those are important topics for us to talk about. And those are topics that we should have important personal convictions on. And those are topics that we often address on Sundays. And we open up the Bible and say, well, let's explore this and try to figure out what it teaches us. But what are the core beliefs? What are those few beliefs that we want to be defined by? How do we figure out what are the majors that we're going to major on and what's minor? What's primary and what's secondary? How do you figure that out? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. If you're a follower of Jesus and somebody comes up to you and they're not a follower of Jesus and they say, hey, in about a minute, can you tell me what do followers of Jesus believe? What would you say? You have 60 seconds. How would you answer that question? What are the things that you would say? Or here's another suggestion. What would you die for? Like, What would you actually give your life for? If it was really a matter of life and death, and I know that sounds kind of dramatic, right? If you were to die tonight. <laughs> but seriously, what would you die on a hill for? Would you die for your beliefs about creation, about predestination, about what marriage is supposed to look like, about the end times, what would you really die for? You see, those two questions, what would you share if somebody said, like, give me a minute of what Christians believe, or, or what would you really die for? Those questions seem to clarify for us what are the most central things that should be the most important to us. And so our posture has always been, let's figure out what are the majors and let's major on those. And the Apostles' Creed helps us do that. And then all the other stuff that's minor or secondary, let's, let's minor on that. And that can be frustrating at times, right? I know because I get questions all the time. What does New Denver Church believe about this? Stephen gets these as pastors. We get these all the time. What is New Denver Church, what's New Denver Church's position on fill in the blank, Right? And there's six or eight different things that are usually in that blank. There's one or two that are almost always in that blank, right? What is New Denver Church's position on this? And if it's not in the Apostles' Creed, I'll usually say, we don't have a position on that. That's important. I mean, I can tell you what I think about that. And I'd love to explore what the Bible says about that. I can help you think about that. In fact, sometimes we even did a sermon series on that a year ago. You should go listen. And we talked about that. And we tried to understand what the Bible might say and what the different positions are and try to cut through. So it's important, but 
Our statement of faith is the Apostles' Creed. That's what's most important for us. Those are the majors for us. We don't really take a position on all the other stuff. Now, here's one more principle that might clarify all that and pull it together. And it's a quote that somebody else said. Principle number three. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Um, It's been said that St. Augustine said this in the 5th century. It's not clear if he was the one that actually first said it or somebody else um, said it. But I think it captures this idea really well. That when it comes to secondary matters, they can be important, but we should show liberty in those. And we should show charity in those. And in fact, Paul addresses this in one of his letters, the letter to Romans in chapter 14. And Stephen actually read this last week, and we looked at it a little bit, so I'm not going to reread it again today. You can go back and do that yourself. But there was a situation in the church in Rome where there's a group of Christians that said, these are the holidays that are really important that all Christians should celebrate. And there's another group of Christians that said, no, we don't think we should celebrate those holidays. And then this group said, well, these are the things that we think are immoral and wrong and sinful and people shouldn't do those. And another group of people said, no, we don't think that's immoral, wrong, or sinful. We don't think that's a problem. And Paul looked at these group of people and he said, look, these are secondary matters. They're important matters. And in the midst of these secondary matters, you need to show liberty to one another and you need to show charity to one another. But these are things that should not divide us. These are not the central tenets of our faith. And we found at New Denver, there's actually a richness here when we have a community that has a bit of theological diversity. That there's, when there's people that we worship together with who maybe see some of those issues that are secondary differently than I see them. So I sat with someone um, a few years ago uh, who had been coming to our church for a couple of months, and he had some really strong convictions on one particular narrow theological issue. And he was having a hard time here at our church because he had realized there were some other people at our church that probably had a different perspective, and so he was thinking about leaving. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? I think the most challenging and rewarding thing you could do would be to stay. And to actually go get to know some of those people that maybe hold a different position than you do on this one issue and to discover that they actually love Jesus as much as you do. He didn't think that would be a rewarding exercise. (laughs) Um, And so he left. But uh, our hope is that we would be a community of people that would find unity on the most essential things. And on all the other stuff, it would be an opportunity for empathy, for understanding, for grace, for compassion, for, yes, even liberty and charity, as Paul describes in the New Testament. Now, one um, caveat, and then I want to close with a story. Uh, The caveat is that there are some practices that we have as a church that are rooted in beliefs that are not outlined in the Apostles' Creed. So um, we believe that women are just as gifted uh, to teach and to lead as men are, and so women teach and lead and serve in those same ways in our church. And uh, that's not in the Apostles' Creed, but we think that's what the Bible teaches, and so that's a practice we have. Um, We think that having a group of leaders in the church called elders 
uh, follows a biblical precedent and uh, is helpful. And so we have an elder board, even though the Apostles' Creed says nothing about elder boards. Um, We also believe that following the IRS laws for processing tax donations is the right thing to do, right? Even though that's not written in the Apostles' Creed anywhere. Um, So there are practical decisions that every church has to make about practices that they have, and those are things that we wouldn't include in a statement of faith because they're not central to our core beliefs. What are the core beliefs that define our community of faith? They're those that we've embraced in the Apostles' Creed. Now, I want to close by sharing just uh, a quick cautionary tale, Um, an example that should give us pause when we're tempted to make something minor major. Um, And it's a risk to share this example because it's from 500 years ago, and uh, I think it's really interesting, and I hope you will too. Um, So Martin Luther, I mentioned him before, uh, he lived in Germany in the 1500s, and he was a part of a group of people who were Catholic at the time. He was Catholic as could be. He was a Catholic monk and a professor at a Catholic university teaching Catholic doctrine, right? And yet he saw all these abuses in the church at that time and some things that he felt like needed reforming, and so he launched this movement to begin to reform these things in Germany and in Europe. About the same time, there was a guy named Ulrich Zwingli who lived in the Swiss, what was called the Swiss Confederation then, Switzerland uh, today. And, and just coincidentally, he actually saw many of the same problems and many of the same abuses on his own and began to initiate big reforms there as well. And at the same time, there were all kinds of other groups, and some were even more radical about this. They were actually called Anabaptists, and they began launching some reforms at the same time. And eventually Europe in the 1520s began to descend into political unrest. There were peasant revolts and violence and all sorts of things happening between all of these groups over many of these theological issues. And so there was this one political leader in Germany, his name was Philip of Hesse, and he came to Luther and Zwingli. He wrote to them and he said, I want you guys to come together because if you don't, There's just going to be more and more chaos in Europe. And so if you can take these two movements that you're leading in Germany and Switzerland and you can unite them together and you can find out the things that you agree on, that you actually agree on a whole lot of things, then one movement can transform all of Europe. And so he invited Luther and Zwingli and their entourages to meet at a castle in the town of Marburg, Germany. And the meeting became known as the Marburg Colloquy. And they met for four days in this castle, and they discussed 15 important issues of belief. And they agreed on the first 14. But when it came to the 15th, they couldn't agree. Do you know what the 15th issue was? It was about communion. Not whether they should take communion as followers of Jesus. Not whether communion was important, or communion was called Eucharist or um, other names, Lord's Supper. Not about how communion started at the Last Supper when Jesus gathered with his disciples and he took the bread and the wine and he used it to, to demonstrate and point to and signify the sacrifice he was about to make on behalf of all of humanity. Luther and Zwingli actually agreed on all of that. But Luther said that when Christians take communion, that Jesus' body 
is in some tangible and literal way present in the bread. And Zwingli said, that doesn't make sense. The bread is just a symbol of Jesus' body. Jesus went back to heaven. That's where his body is, is not in the piece of bread. And so Luther said, well, let's go back to the Bible and read that. What does it say? And Zwingli read from the Gospels where Jesus took the bread at the Last Supper and he held it up and he said, this is my body. And Zwingli explained that, that this was metaphorical. And so Luther said, well, wait a second. What does it say again? This is my body. And Zwingli said, well, I don't think Jesus meant us to take that literally. And Luther said, wait, 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 wait. can we just read it one more time? This is my body. And Zwingli said, well, actually, Jesus also said, I am the door. And he said, I am the vine. Did he mean those to be literal? I don't think so. And Luther said, that's a great point. Can we just read it one more time? What did Jesus say again? This is my, and over and over it went. And Luther, literally, we had the transcripts of this, and Luther just kept pointing back, like, can you just read it again for me one more time out loud, just for everybody I can hear? And Luther's kind of a jerk about it, and Zwingli doesn't budge at all. And they end up, like, tempers start flaring, and emotions start flying, and they leave without any resolution, without any reconciliation, without any agreement whatsoever. And they would never see each other again. And the two movements that they started, one became known as Lutheranism and one became known as the Reformed movement, would remain divided. Because they couldn't agree on their belief in God? No. Because they couldn't agree that Jesus had died on the cross to offer forgiveness for sins? No. Because they couldn't agree on some central matter of belief? No. It was because one statement of Jesus, four words, they couldn't agree whether it was metaphorical or literal, even though it had no practical implications whatsoever on how either of them actually practiced communion. So what's the lesson for us today? Uh, Well, for starters, let's not sweat the details of communion, right? Um... Is Jesus' body present in some real or literal way? I don't know. I mean, I tend to go as wingly on this one, but you know what, Luther, you be you. Like, it doesn't, it's, it's, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. There's liberty, there's charity here, right? And for us, it seems like a silly issue to fight over, but fight they did. In fact, Europe really did descend into violence, And chaos. And a number of years later, a massive war broke out for 30 years. It was called the 30 Years War from 1618 to 1648. It was the most destructive war that's ever been seen on European soil. Over issues like this. That they began killing each other over. We live in a different time and culture today. But I wonder what secondary issues... We've made primary. I wonder where we might at times be tempted to lack liberty or charity towards others who maybe disagree with us on issues that are not as central as we think they are. Belief is important. It's really important. Jesus talks about believing 
all of the time. It's important. But we want to be a community of faith defined by the most important beliefs. So let me pray for us. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Um, Not that we would just believe uh, a set of statements, but that we would actually believe in you and put our trust in you and what you've done for us and who you are to us and how you love us. And so God, wherever we are today, whoever's here and wherever we all are on our different journeys of faith, may we sing the words of this next song and profess that there's something rich about standing in a longer tradition of people who have put their faith in you and trusted in everything that you've done. Pray this in your name.